This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. We warned you about this, told you that this was coming, that the Democrats weren't going to respect any of the rules of the road, that there wasn't going to be some coming together or unity. That didn't last long at all, did it? They couldn't even go a couple of months pretending that Biden was really going to unify the country. Now, that was what people were sold. We were in a very difficult year, the pandemic. Folks were scared. And in response, the media knew, the Democrat Party knew, they had to put a guy who just seemed somewhat non-threatening forward and who promised to just be America's grandfather, you know, just no joke. Here I am, Joe Biden. And we see what that really results in. And it's just the progressive left wing administration that you would have gotten with any number of other Democrat candidates. In fact, I kind of wish it had been Bernie Sanders instead. So at least they'd be honest about their socialist intent. But another place where there's not a lot of honesty these days is online. There are people who are doing a whole bunch of things you need to be aware of that are targeting you. For one, they want to get access to your private information to sell. You know, that's happening. Everything you're doing online, that's happening all the time. Two, there are people that are trying to get access to your information to steal it to make money, meaning that they're going to actually take your credit card or whatever they can get off your computer and engage in criminal fraud. And then you've also got, on top of all that, the censorship from big tech and from the social media companies. How can you protect yourself from this? It's actually really easy. ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN gives you a virtual private network. A virtual private network means that you have protection for your web activities. Everything you're doing on your phone, your laptop can be protected from snooping, from spying, from theft, because they encrypt your data and they hide your IP address so that companies can't just track and spy on you. It's so easy. It costs you less than six bucks a month, give or take. And you just download the app to your phone, you set it up, and you're protected. You need this level of protection, and ExpressVPN is by far the best in the business. Stop handing over your data to big tech companies. Go to the VPN that I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash buck to get three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash buck to get three extra months free. Expressvpn.com slash buck right now to learn more. We keep telling ourselves that they won't go all the way, right? That's what the conservatives, that's what the go along to get along GOP wants to tell themselves at night so that they can sleep and that they won't worry that much about the future of the country. And yet the Democrats show their hand and sure enough, institutions, respect for our norms, all that stuff that they talked about. During the Trump administration, it was just that empty words in the pursuit of Democrat power. I bring you the latest here with Democrats planning to unveil a bill that would add Supreme Court justices. That's right. A court packing bill. And it's going to go from 9 to 13 if they get their way. Can I just dramatically expand the court? This hasn't happened in over 150 years. And this is a reminder of just who the Democrats really are. They are authoritarians. 
They believe in one thing and one thing only, and that is the expansion of their power. They are absolutists. They they act with a certainty that they know what is best. They know what is right for everyone in the country. They know what's right for you. And you're not really allowed to say anything about it. You're just told what to do. And if they get a clear majority on the Supreme Court, then there will be no break in their minds. Because do you think they're going to think about it this way? You think they'd go for court packing and not break the filibuster? I think you could say this is the Democrat break the glass plan. They've decided to just go for it. If not now, when? Think about what they could do here. Think about the cascading effect. If they say, well, we're actually going to we're actually going to pack the Supreme Court. And then they decide, well, we've already we've already crossed the Rubicon because that's exactly what this is. This is the Rubicon, my friends, for our government. And they say, well, we've already done that. So why not take it a step further and also get rid of the filibuster? So then you would have no legislative check on the Democrat Party and no judicial check on the Democrat Party. They, they could get rid of both of these. They could very easily do this if they want to. And really what may happen, of course, is they do the filibuster first and then do the Supreme Court bill. But these, these are the steps that they can take to create a one-party state. And I want, I want you to ask yourself this question now. Put aside what you think is normative. Put aside what you think uh, we're, we're supposed to believe. If the Democrat Party could, if the Democrat Party could get rid of the Republican Party right now in one fell swoop, couldn't they do that? Wouldn't they do that? Right. What would stop them? You don't think they'd want to get rid of Republicans? You don't think that they would like to be a party with 70 or or 80 percent control of the electorate? And then, then there's this GOP, this this rump, this old vestige of a GOP that exists as just the controlled opposition that happens in other democracies around the world. You know, this is not something that's unprecedented. A one party state with no real check on the control of the Democrat Party. And at that point, it just grows and grows. We've already got an open border, friends. We've already got. Modern monetary theory at work, as far as the Democrats are concerned, spend whatever they want to spend. Where are we able to slow them down? Where is our hashtag resistance? Well, as you're seeing, doesn't uh, doesn't seem very effective at all, does it? Haven't been able to really figure out how to get this going. And those of us who were warning about this from the very beginning now point to this and just say, oh, we told you, for those independents, for those never-Trumper Republicans, for whatever moderate Democrats there are in the country, you don't get a moderate administration just because you have an old, boring politico like Joe Biden at the top. That's not what happens with the modern Democrat Party. That's not how this goes. And all the things that we talk about that the Democrats want to do the most radical Green New Deal agenda, the t- taking of your guns. What's to stop them 
if they eliminate the filibuster, which they can they can very well do. What's to stop them if they eliminate the filibuster and if they pack the Supreme Court from enacting any part of their agenda? Who's going to tell them no? And I sit here and I'm very frustrated, of course, by what happened in the last election and the fact that we have to come to grips as a party with the fact that we are in a very weak position right now, right after having a president that we believe to be part of the beginning of a political movement. Now, I think there's a comeback in our future. And if I were to have guessed after this last election, when would we feel I'll just say it feel the most depressed to be a conservative. It was going to be right about starting now and going into the fall. Here's my case for optimism, though, because, yeah, right, right, right at this moment, it feels pretty bleak. I get it. But here's my case for optimism. The Democrats aren't good at governing. In fact, the greatest enemy that the Biden administration has is the observation of the American people with respect to what Joe Biden's doing. There is nothing, there is nothing that will make people turn on this administration more than actually having to live through the policies and decision-making of the socialist Democrat apparatus. That is the single best machine for Republican turnout and for flipping independents and, and even some moderate Democrats to our side in the midterms. What's going on at the southern border, where I will be next week for a few days, is a disaster, and the Democrats cannot and will not stop it. What's going on with our spending will lead to inflation. This will lead to real economic pain for people, particularly particularly those who live off of, of wages and have been trying to save money to try to build assets to get ahead of the paycheck to paycheck cycle that so many millions of Americans are in. It's going to hurt them because Everything, food, gas, housing gets more expensive. These things are going to occur. Never mind the foreign policy challenges that we're seeing arise here. The Biden team is simply not up to it. Joe Biden is not up to it. You think this is a smart guy? You think this is somebody who really has wisdom and good judgment? He never did before now, and even the Democrats knew it. But we're supposed to forget all of that? We're to pretend that Joe Biden's actually... A winner just because he happened to win this last election after losing so many attempts before to be president because he was the man for the moment of fraud that the Democrats were perpetrating against the American people, pretending that we were going to get a different administration from what we got. Think of all the times they lectured us about how Trump was undermining our sacred institutions. And now in your own head, just just take a moment to consider what institution did Trump really undermine? What institution was Trump willing to put through the kind of upheaval the Democrats are talking about now, whether it's the filibuster in the Senate or even bigger, the Supreme Court? I mean, can't Democrats understand what this leads to? But there's there's a a childishness, a selfishness and a short sightedness at the heart of so much of the Democrat Party's id, so much of its emotional thinking. Harry Reid decided to invoke the nuclear option when they had a Senate majority of the Democrat side, and then that led to changes the Democrats didn't like because all of a sudden it was a simple majority vote to get through judges. They started it, 
And then when it happened exactly as everybody warned it would, that there would be an, an equal and opposite reaction, in a sense, to their usurpation, to their power grab. And they decided, well, now we're just going to just escalate it even more. And that's the phase we're in right now. We were told they'd never use the nuclear option, and then they did. Under the Obama administration, Harry Reid hit the nuke button for the filibuster in the Senate on judicial nominees. And now we're at a point where they're just saying, maybe we should get rid of that entirely, the filibuster, and, and we should pack the Supreme Court. Do they really think that it would stop at 13? No, of course not. The Republican Party, the Republican Party would be a bunch of cowards and wimps if they didn't decide the next time they were in power that they would add a few judges of their own. You know, this this is what happens. Give it, you know, 10 years, you're going to have 20 Supreme Court justices or, you know, you'd have to have 21, I guess. You have an odd number, but you understand what I'm saying. Just keeps ratcheting up. Because they've abandoned shared principle in the pursuit of power. Central to the Democrat ethos these days. They simply don't care. And here's the other part of this. And this is why I brought up the one-party state idea. There is a belief among Democrats that if they go scorched earth right now, it won't matter. It won't matter what the Republican Party thinks or wants to do in response when power switches hands because they think they can prevent that from ever happening. That's what really is in the back of the minds of the leftist socialist strategists who are actually making the calls behind the scenes. Can they effectively uh, neuter and cast aside the Republican Party once and for all if they just go for it? And this is under the Biden administration. You'll notice it really is just a continuation of the Obama administration approach, which was whatever you got to do to win and whatever you got to do to crush the other side. Break any rules you got to break. Sick the IRS on your political opponents. You know, use uh, executive orders in ways that are clearly abusive of constitutional separation of powers and whatever you got to do. Pen and a phone. Just go for it. I hope everyone is waking up to what is happening around us right now. As I said, this is the Rubicon. The Democrats are looking at the water as it rushes by. And the only question remains as to what we will do if and when they cross it. Parts of our country are backsliding into the days of Jim Crow, passing laws that harken back to the era of poll taxes when black people were made to guess how many beans, how many jelly beans in a jar or count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap before they could cast their ballot. Backsliding into the days of Jim Crow. What a horrific, awful, dishonest thing for the president of the United States to say. Reckless. Absolutely reckless demagoguery. But this is what Joe Biden's done his whole career. Joe Biden is, at his core, just a slimy fraud. He's always just done whatever would be most beneficial for him within the Democrat apparatus. That's his whole career. He stands for nothing. He stands for Bidenism, which stands for whoever is going to uh, either write him the biggest check or provide him the biggest political boost. 
This guy is effectively a weather vane. He goes wherever the forces around him push. He is inept at anything else. And this is why he has this long history of gaffes, they say. But really, the gaffes are just a result of this being a man of poor judgment who's not very bright. Joe Biden's just not a very smart guy. We all know it. We all can see it. He's he's never been impressive in any way. I mean, to be the 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 senator from a state of Delaware. OK, you know, whoop dee. Who cares? Uh, and yet Joe Biden is president of the United States. What what a sad state of affairs. Right. What a what a sad situation this is. Joe Biden saying just destructive things at this moment in time when we all know that there's an expectation of riots going beyond what's already happening. I mean, you think the riots in Minneapolis are are bad now. Think about what they'll be like next week after the Chauvin trial. Now, you know, who knows what the final outcome will be? I don't believe. I mean, if they charge Chauvin with with uh, with felony murder, I mean, they're just then now we're just actually going beyond what any reasonable person could think to punish people for the, the benefit of the mob. But we're a country that now is increasingly operating at the whims of the mob. You see this? You see how this happens? Look at the response you get from our media apparatus. Look at what's said by the journos and the and elected Democrats from Biden to Pelosi to Schumer to AOC to Tlaib to all of them. Look at the way they speak about this movement, this BLM movement and these rioters. Let's just all be honest about this. And I, I've written about this today at BuckSexton.com. Let's just say it. Riots are self-indulgent idiocy. Not only do they break laws and hurt people, they don't even bring about an outcome of benefit for anyone other than a very small circle of elites and activists who either cheer this on from afar or gather social capital for themselves by making excuses for it. I mean, does anybody really think that there has been a single a single benefit from all of this, a single worthwhile aspect of it? I mean, put aside for a moment the appalling immorality of looting businesses because people are upset or systemic oppression or whatever childish justification is offered at the at that moment for Bayham, right? What has come out of BLM that has made anything better for anyone? Could any of the BLM organizers name a single concession or change resulting from their agitation that actually made lives better? Of course not. And let's be honest about this. Defund the police is possibly the most moronic, reckless political slogan uttered in living memory. But the BLM movement acts as though it's the rallying cry of a new civil rights struggle. I mean, it's hard to take the BLM activist claim seriously when so many times these mostly peaceful protests end with mobs stealing sneakers and designer handbags. A healthy nation does not feel under siege at the whims of the mob. 
And that is where we are, friends. People get angry. They take to the streets. Our political class tries to placate them or treats them as heroes. They should be universally condemned. And it's not about protests. Nobody cares. They protest all day. Get out with your placard. Do whatever you want. Protests are fine. But they know that won't actually have the intended effect. Why? Because their argument is weak. What they're claiming that law enforcement is evil and racist is not true. And most Americans know that. So what do they do? They add a layer of intimidation to it. Antifa, BLM, they decide that it's not just their voices that must be heard. It's the feeling of the bricks hitting cops in the face. It's the sound of shattered glass from stores in your neighborhood and the sense that you cannot trust the political class to protect you and they want to disarm you simultaneously. I believed that our presence in Afghanistan should be focused on the reason we went in the first place, to ensure Afghanistan would not be used as a base from which to attack our homeland again. We did that. We accomplished that objective. I said, among with others, we'd follow Osama bin Laden to the gates of hell if need be. That's exactly what we did. And we got him. It took us close to 10 years to put President Obama's commitment uh, into form. And that's exactly what happened. Osama bin Laden was gone. That was 10 years ago. Think about that. We delivered justice to bin Laden a decade ago. And we've stayed in Afghanistan for a decade since. He says they're all going to be out. All of our troops will be out by September 11th of this year. It should be noted that this is on a timeline that was put forward by Trump before the Biden administration even came into office. But like I've said before, I'm not changing my opinion on this because we have a different commander in chief. I think enough is enough. And I want to also make sure I'm very clear uh, when I say that I believe that the situation in Afghanistan will will likely deteriorate after U.S. troops are pulled out. Now, to what extent, uh, that's anybody's guess right now, but it's it's not going to be good. But we also shouldn't establish not only a, a pattern of staying in a country and trying to build it, trying to create stability in a foreign country that we don't have an immediate national security interest in. Um, And that's putting, you know, that's one way of just saying we can't do this nation building thing. And then beyond that, there's always the possibility that if you are there, your mission set will escalate and the Taliban's not going anywhere. We figured that out. There's that old, I think it's attributed to Mullah Omar that, you know, we have all the clocks, but they have all the time, which is true in a sense. And so we're going to go through this uh, this this process of a withdrawal. Remember, the Obama administration withdrew from Iraq, and that did lead to the rise of ISIS, and we ended up having a, a huge mess in the region. That is also possible here with Afghanistan. We need to be very straightforward about that, that this could have some rapid deterioration, and, and then you'll you'll have another major problem on your hands. But the alternative is to just stay there forever. And, and all of I can tell you this, I don't I'm not doing some official polling or anything like that. But all of the Afghan combat vets 
that I know that I've talked to you about this say that that they just feel like it's it's time uh, enough enough is enough here and we we need to get out and so here's Biden telling us all that you know the Afghans have got to take command here and do their thing play it 2008 weeks before we swore the oath of office president obama and i were about to swear president obama asked me to travel to afghanistan and report back on the state of the war in afghanistan i flew to afghanistan to the kunar valley a rugged mountainous region on the border with pakistan what i saw on that trip reinforced my conviction that only the afghans have the right and responsibility to lead their country, and that more and endless American military force could not create or sustain a durable Afghan government. I believed that our presence in Afghanistan should be focused on the reason we went in the first place. The mission has been accomplished in Afghanistan of destroying al-Qaeda for a long time. We did transition into this other mission of trying to make Afghanistan a successful country that can defend itself and and maintain its own borders and have a a functioning government. And then it turned into, you know, school for girls and human rights and things like this. All worthy goals, but not our fight. And there has been no real way to take the mission beyond where it's been for about the last decade. And I can tell you, having seen the assessments at the very highest level from a decade ago when I was in the CIA and working on the Afghan issue and and in Afghanistan for months, uh, that there was no realistic plan to get us to the point where the conditions-based approach would let us leave. There was no realistic plan. We kept having people come forward uh, who would say, oh, well, We're just going to do this. We're going to train the Afghan army and we're going to train the Afghan national police. So and somebody would then probably bring up in the conference room or wherever. Hey, but that was the plan two years ago. And this is where we are now. And it's be quiet. We'll do it better this time. And it just kept happening and happening. So we had the Obama administration, if you remember, surged to over 100,000 troops at one point in Afghanistan. Massive force escalation. And here we are again, having a conversation about can we pull out the last three or four thousand soldiers from Afghanistan? You know, they told us if we didn't have a bigger military presence in Syria, remember that after we uh, crushed after Trump crushed the Islamic State, there was a debate. I remember it. Oh, we need to maintain a longer term presence there. I, I know there's some there's some small number of you know U.S. operators, U.S. special forces, and and others who are still in the region, but they did not, uh, there was not this long-term, large-scale military presence to hold it all together, and we had to fight against that. I I think it's fascinating that Biden is claiming that this decision is not a tough one for him. Here's what he said, play six. Was it a hard decision to make, sir? No, it wasn't. To me, it was absolutely clear. Absolutely clear. We went for two reasons. We went to Bin Laden and the end of safe haven. From the very beginning, if you may recall, I never thought we were there to somehow unify Iraq. I mean, excuse me, Afghanistan. It's never been done. It's never been done. 
This is the guy who's making the decisions. But I'll say this. I think it is. I think it's the right decision. But let's frame this in the right way. Joe Biden is fulfilling the timeline and the plan set forth by the Trump administration before him. And I just want to put this out there. Do you think there's a very different approach in the way the media is covering this? I mean, I know this is a silly question because you know the answer, but really just just take a moment. You know, is it is it really the case that our national media believes that when Joe Biden does something, it is brilliant. But when Trump wanted to do the same thing or Trump wanted to do it before Joe Biden did, it was reckless. It was spur of the moment. Oh, yes, friends, that is absolutely the case. Hat tip here to uh, Drew Holden for pulling together from the uh, from a from D.C. He's a freelance commentary writer pulling together this thread on Twitter. Here's what he had today. President Biden announced his intention. I'm sorry, this is from yesterday to end the war in Afghanistan, a great media fanfare. You may remember way back in 2019 and 2020, President Trump said the same thing. Let me know if you can spot the difference in coverage then versus now. When Trump said we were leaving, CNN quoted the NATO Secretary General with a stark warning about how dangerous the move would be. But when Biden's decision was announced, well, that one was different. Here, here's, here is the way CNN covered. I mean, this is a fun game, isn't it? Uh, CNN covered... Trump's announcement of the desire to withdraw from Afghanistan. Quote, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, or I guess it's Jens Stoltenberg, issued a stark warning that any premature withdrawal from Afghanistan could be dangerous. A day after reports that President Trump is eyeing a troop drawdown against the advice of the nation's top military officials. So Trump says it, and they, they, CNN runs off to NATO uh, and NATO's secretary general and then just has this general, you know, Nate, America's top military officials disagree. So basically, Trump is reckless. Trump is doing this. OK. CNN. When Joe Biden announces it, quote, as President Biden prepares to lay out his plan to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, a source familiar with his thinking tells CNN's Christian Amanpour that he thinks no amount of U.S. troops in the country could be a game changer anymore. So it's just when Biden does it, it's let's let's uh, tell everybody what his thinking is. Let's be the PR team for uh, President Joe Biden. But when Trump announced that it, it's let's go to a foreigner and get his opinion and then say that the whole U.S. military apparatus is, is opposed against him. It's it's amazing on uh, CNN yesterday. This is just reckless and it is really risky, says Brett Bruin of Trump's plan to withdraw troops from Iraq and Afghanistan. You're not sharing information with the incoming administration, so the likelihood that something could go wrong is very, very high. CNN reporting on that was when Trump announced it. CNN reporting on Biden's announcement. Former President Obama praised President Biden's bold leadership for his decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th saying that it is time to recognize that we've accomplished all that we can military and militarily in America's longest war. A little more here. CNN, diplomats worry Trump's desire to withdraw U.S. troops risk 
success of Afghan Taliban talks. CNN again. President Biden has announced his decision to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan before September 11th, uh, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon that led the U.S. into its longest war. All right, let's, let, now let's look over the New York Times. Let's look over the New York Times. News analysis. The Taliban wanted the U.S. to leave Afghanistan. Turkey wanted the U.S. out of Syria, and North Korea wanted them to stop military exercise with South Korea. Trump has, to some extent, obliged all three, but without getting much in return. New York Times. We went to war in Afghanistan because of a horrific attack that happened 20 years ago, President Biden said. I'm announcing a full withdrawal from the country. That cannot explain why we should remain there in 2021. I mean, it just, go, it just goes on and on and on. The way, see, the, but this is a, a clinic in the propaganda from the Democrat media, you see. When, when Trump announces something, it's let's get all of the, quote, experts and former, you know, former uh, Obama regime officials and other, you know, internationalist foreigners uh, together and, and let's have them trash the decision that Trump makes. But then the same decision under Biden, it's let's just let Biden's words be heard and let's present this as statesmanship. How anyone can think that CNN still qualifies as a news organization that even makes a pretense of being objective is just is just beyond imagination. Right? I mean, how, how anyone could cling to such an obvious fiction is just flatly embarrassing. But there are people and a lot of them live here in New York where I am or they live in Washington, D.C. or they live in L.A. They still think CNN is, you know, where the real information and journalism gets done. On China, the administration's tough talk has been welcome. But its proposal to cut defense spending after inflation suggests there's less interest in walking the walk. We'll not keep pace with China and Russia by cutting defense spending to placate fringe parts of the far left. The American people need, and they deserve, a foreign policy that puts our security, our partners, and our interests ahead of the reflexive desire to break with the last four years at any cost at any cost. If this administration wants a successful legacy on the world stage, if they want accomplishments that will endure, they need to put American strength back at the center and come back to a bipartisan mainstream. Ah, yes, Mitch McConnell, the bipartisan mainstream in our foreign policy, huh? That's what we're going to talk about now. Hmm. Now, when it comes to strength abroad, what, what are the central principles, the central tenets of Trumpist foreign policy, if you will. It's America first, right? That's that's where you start from. So is is this in America's interest? Does this work, this decision work for the American people? And then beyond that, who are our friends? Who are our enemies? Do they know the difference? And does the difference matter? And that's a very straightforward place, I think, for us to start on, on all these issues. Russia right now, let's just take a look around. Russia is getting more aggressive against Ukraine, is uh, has put out a very, a very clear saber rattling statement about how the U.S. should not deploy some of its naval forces around Crimea. And now it's it's been reported today the Biden administration is actually backing off that, but going to announce more sanctions, more targeted sanctions and expelling some diplomats. 
Does anyone think that's going to do anything? You know, I mean, let's be honest here. We had four years of Russia hysteria. Now a Democrat comes into office and Russia's getting more aggressive than when Trump was in office against U.S. and NATO and, and European interests in general. But you're hearing it uh, a very muted criticism of what's going on here from the Democrat side of things, because what do they really want to do? Ultimately, the Democrat mindset about foreign policy runs into this problem. The world is a dangerous place and there are bad actors and bad people in it. And you have to be willing to make them face consequences for that. And they have to believe you're willing to do that. Otherwise, it's all just sitting around talking over lattes at, you know, Davos or in Brussels or wherever, having a bunch of diplomats, you know, chit chatting while the bad guys just do what they want to do. What do you think the Chinese approach is going to be to the Biden administration? I mean, I can tell you this right now. I am I am betting on Chinese ascendancy against this Biden foreign policy team for the next four years. And I don't like to say that as an American, but I think that's what we're heading for. And then on the Republican side, we need to remember that the foreign policy establishment for the GOP is still largely dominated by Bush holdovers and neocons and interventionists. People who think that, you know, U.S. military power should be projected around the world in ways that don't immediately benefit U.S. interests. And there's always another country to invade. I mean, I look at Iran and I get worried because there are still people who think, you know, let's take this generally militarily insignificant and and economically battered country and let's consider how we could maybe invade and overthrow and and do a rock 2.0 there are still people i can assure you unfortunately who believe that more data coming out about where we are with vaccinations and how effective they are and what the risks are and everything else and i don't know what to tell you then i keep being right and the fauciites keep being wrong it's 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 a really consistent a consistent situation at this point it just continues on like that. And I'm hoping more and more people wake up to this. It's been so damaging the way that they've shut down our ability to actually speak about this on the or in the public forum that is the digital town square that the social media folks have made these decisions. But I'm, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep pushing, even though it hurts. It hurts my bottom line, it hurts my reach, hurts my ability to push my podcast and other things out there on social media platforms, because I think this issue is too important. My own digital team, my own people say, Buck, you, you got to lay off the Fauci stuff or else, you know, we're going to get throttled. We're going to get shadow banned. We've already been. And I say, I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to back off this. It's too important. It's also really important that you know how to take care of HR issues in your company effectively and inexpensively, because when you're running a business, as you know, especially for all the small business owners out there listening to this right now, HR issues can kill you. You got wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries are not cheap, paying about an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Month to month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. 
You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash buck right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash buck. B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash buck. The numbers are in on vaccine infection rate, meaning people who have been vaccinated and still have some COVID infection. Who wants to who wants to guess whether the numbers uh, indicate that this is something that justifies continued masking and other restrictions for those who are vaccinated? Who, who wants to guess? I'm just wondering you, you think you think it's incredibly rare, a little bit rare. Yeah. Point zero zero eight. If you do some back of the napkin math on this one, you've got about 60 some odd million Americans vaccinated so far and 5000 cases of infection, according to the CDC. That's that's where the number currently stands. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? That's a pretty astonishing, uh, astonishingly low number of people who when and this is great news. Let me just say this is great news. We are now we're looking at real world data. And if you if you get the vaccine, you got like a one in 10,000 chance of still getting infected. And if you get infected after getting the vaccine, your chances, you know, even less than that. I mean, I haven't crunched the numbers on that one, but maybe one in a one in a hundred thousand, maybe one in a million that you will die if you get COVID after getting the vaccine, right? So, you know, there's a lot of different layers here, a lot of different levels. If somebody is vaccinated and yes, they technically contract COVID, but they end up having a mild version of the disease. Okay, well, that's still a win, especially if they're an older person who is at higher risk. So why is there still this this uh, unease and this unwillingness to allow people to go back to normal life. Remember, Fauci said just recently, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't eat indoors, avoid congregate settings for vaccinated people. They are taking away your rights. They're taking and forget about even just your rights. They're taking away your ability to live a normal life based on one in 10,000 and above risk factors. They're taking away your ability to live a normal life because you're not allowed to make basic risk risk analysis decisions for yourself. This is tyrannical. I mean, this is not it's not an overstatement. This is crazy. These people are out of their minds and it's wrong what they're doing. It's wrong. And people should understand it as such. They're not you know, careful, trying to just save all the lives and be a good public health servant or whatever. No, this is their mentality. The endless busybodying of the American people, the hall monitorization of America is almost complete now where you have people who really think that they should be walking around outside, double masked after being vaccinated. And when people like me point out how stupid that is, I'm attacked. You don't care if people die. Social media shuts down my accounts. Fauci, uh, Fauci has had to address the rare instances of people who are vaccinated getting infected. I, I want to wa- walk you through some of the, 
the not-so-good doctor, the little fascist Fauci, the lab coat tyrant. I want to walk you through his explanation here. And then, and then we can all talk about how, okay, why are they coming to the conclusions they're coming to based on what we know about this? Here's how he starts. Thank you very much, Dr. Walensky. I'd like to spend a few minutes now talking about the concept of breakthrough infections. Can I have the first slide? I think it would be important to put this into perspective. It's very important. With some definitions. A breakthrough infection or a vaccine failure is when a person contracts an infection despite being vaccinated against it. We see this with all vaccines in clinical trials and in the real world, no vaccine is 100% efficacious or effective, which means that you will always see breakthrough infections regardless of the efficacy of your vaccine. Let's stop right there. There is no such thing as a 100% effective vaccine, okay? Doesn't exist. So let's just remember that. So anyone who's saying, well, the vaccine's not 100% effective, that's never going to happen. It has never happened. It will never happen. So this is all about risk assessment and analysis. There is no perfect safety. Does not exist. So anyone who's saying, oh, but, you know, the vaccine, it's only 95%. There's still 5% of people get infected, so we still have to wear the masks. And They are emotionally unwell. They have been brainwashed. Okay, that's what's going on. That's the situation as it's playing out. So let's continue here with Fauci as he's explaining more about the truth of vaccines uh, according to the CDC and the health experts out there. Here's what, what, what he says. There's primary vaccine failure when the body actually doesn't amount an adequate immune response for a number of reasons. Could be immune status, health status, age, medications you're on, or something wrong with the vaccine, storage, delivery, composition. Secondary vaccine failure may occur when immunity fades over time. Now, a vaccine may fail also if a person is exposed to a new or a different strain or a variant. For example, influenza is the most common of this which mutates rapidly and drifts genetically, generally from season to season. However, even if a vaccine fails to protect against infection, it often protects against serious disease. Next. Now, now, this is important. One area that I'm telling you there's been an intentional, there's been a decision not to update the public on is this notion of asymptomatic spread asymptomatic spread certainly does happen from what we know but it's very difficult to separate truly asymptomatic spread from say pre-symptomatic spread meaning that you're somebody like for example when i got covid i felt a little off but i didn't feel sick i would say about a day or two before i got wrecked and some of you who are listening to the show remember that i I essentially found out that I I felt like I was really sick, and then I found out I had COVID while I was doing the radio show. But I had felt a little iffy for a day or two before then, and I was very concerned that I had seen some some friends and family members um, in that period of time and that I was worried that, that they could have been exposed. Fortunately, nobody I was in close contact with came down with any illness. 
Um, and I, I have both my parents are vaccinated. And I was a very happy day when, you know, the threshold period had passed when I didn't have to think about whether I, you know, my parents might have been exposed to covid unbeknownst to me that I had had it. But I was pre-symptomatic before I got I got, you know, walloped by it. But we're led to believe that, oh, you could feel great. You could feel fine, 100 percent. And you're spreading covid all over the place. Remember, when they look at the the R number. R1 means you give it on average if you're sick to one other person. Uh, that's we're talking about giving it to one other person. And, and if you have a low level of virus in your system and your system's handling it very well, it is less likely that you will transmit this virus to other people. So why I think this really matters is that not because what you hear from people and, you know, I saw Tucker Carlson. He keeps digging in. and I appreciate that he's asking these questions. I appreciate that he's raising this. He keeps saying, why? can't we go back to normal if the vaccine works? And I agree with this premise. The answer the left gives that the Fauciites give to this is because there's still so much virus out there that even a 5% failure rate of the vaccine is too high a risk for people to go about their lives who have been vaccinated. And to that, I say bullcrap. Now's where we have to start saying we balance out risk with with our lives. Now's where we have to be willing to say enough is enough. We're not going to live, you know, in fear. And because if you're talking about getting rid of all COVID in the community to the point where we don't have to think about, if you're talking about waiting until COVID is, you know, like uh, like polio or measles or something in this country, we are going to be going through lockdowns and mitigation and all this stuff for at least another year, maybe two or three. Who knows? Who knows? And then there's also the what about the what about the variants? Right. What about these other things? Next slide. If you look at these group of selected vaccines, take a look at the chicken pox through shingles, highly, highly effective vaccines. If you look at influenza, even on a very good year, it's 40 to 60% effective. But let's drill down on that for a second. Next slide, because it really is important to COVID, which I'll get into in a moment. The benefits of the flu vaccine and the importance of partial protection. If you get vaccinated, no doubt you're less likely to get the flu. But even if you do get flu and get sick, Vaccination can reduce the severity and duration of illness and could help get you out of trouble. If you get a little bit more granular. Granular. Yeah. You see, friends, this is why they don't this is why they don't want to have this debate in public. Now, this is why you won't see Fauci go on Tucker's show, because what they'd have to say is we are making arbitrary decisions about what is an acceptable percentage of risk of spread in society for you. And that they're unreasonable in this now. We know that you are, your, your chance of giving someone COVID, I'm sorry, that's not even true. Your chance of getting COVID if you're vaccinated is one in 10,000, give or take, based on the CDC's own numbers. Your chance of getting is one in 10,000 your chance of giving it to somebody after that one in 10,000 is also lessened because you will have less viral load in your system. 
and you are less likely to be infectious. One of the reasons this is so deadly among seniors and has been so bad when it gets into nursing homes is that very critically ill people in the early phase of, of the fight against the virus are shedding more virus. It has taken over more of their system. There's, there's a higher viral load that they're constantly expelling. And they're around those higher risk people. That's why it's so dangerous to the elderly. But the Fauciites will not allow an honest, open discussion about this because if, if we're not at, at a place now where we can agree that vaccinated people should go back to normal life, when are we ever going to be there? When our, our health policy tyrants decide that it's okay again? I think that's, I think that's unacceptable. I think that's not something that we can or should concede to them. And it's, it's time people finally push back and say, this is madness. This is crap. We can't do this anymore. All right. They are, they are psychologically breaking millions of people with this outsized fear campaign all the time. And the public health experts have failed. They have failed to protect us. Their ideas, their policies did not get it done Just look at what happened over the last year. Enough is enough. Fauci's a bum, and it's time for him to go. Um, And it's an indication, an illustration of just how challenging um, and diverse this particular threat is. We have now over 2,000 investigations that tie back to the Chinese government. And on the economic espionage investigation side alone, it's about a 1,300% increase over the last several years. We're opening a new investigation in China every 10 hours, and I can assure the committee that's not because our folks don't have anything to do with their time. China is going to just pillage our economy, our intellectual property, our state secrets, everything over the next four years and has been for many years now already for decades, really stretching back to the 1990s. Uh, The Chinese communist party is our most aggressive, most serious opponent on the world stage. And yet what was the focus for the last four years? Trump and Russia. Remember that Trump and Russia. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They just constantly, misled people into thinking that there was some collusion. And as long as it benefited the elites in D.C. and New York, as long as they felt like their their friends, their buddies were going to, you know, grin at them at cocktail parties for writing stories about Trump Russia collusion as idiotic and false as that was, they were motivated to do it. And so we we took our eye off the ball with with dealing with, as, as a country, not, not, the, not even the Trump administration, as a country, we were much less focused on China than we should have been. Trump was right to confront China on its trade practices. He was right to take action against the Chinese Communist Party and its economy. And now with the Biden administration, what you're going to see is just whatever's not Trump, they will want to do. That's the, the, the guiding light, if you will, of the Biden administration foreign policy is going to be whatever Trump was doing, we're going to do the opposite. Whatever Trump says was important, we say is unimportant. I've also got one other uh, um, one other thing here on the on the Russia collusion delusion. Just just breaking today. 
U.S. intelligence has walked back claims that Russians put bounties on American troops in Afghanistan. Do you remember that story? That was during the election. Remember that story that they ran, the media ran, about how there were Russians that were paying uh, the Taliban to kill Americans in Afghanistan? And why isn't Trump doing more about this? It was a lie, folks. A lie. I told you it was at the time. You know it. A lie. You know what else was a lie? The story they ran about how Trump said that the people that died serving this country and were military cemeteries were losers. Another lie, a smear. And these people in the corporate media, they wonder why when they kept complaining about how Trump lies so much, we didn't listen to them. They wonder why we said, shut up. We've heard enough of this from you, okay? Because it's always about, well, what is this lie? Is, is the lie an inflated opinion? Is the lie something unimportant? Or is it something meant to really mislead on an important issue so that Democrats can get away with more of their nonsense? The, these are the questions that we need to ask. These are the things that come up and require our attention. But, yeah, U.S. Intel, it's the Daily Beast. The Daily Beast is one of the most trash publications online, which is remarkable when you think about it, but it's true. The Daily Beast is a garbage website with a lot of garbage people writing for it. But now, after Biden has won, it's all over. Now we're told, oh, yeah, I guess it wasn't true. There was no Russian bounty on Americans uh, in Afghanistan, so the Taliban would kill more of our soldiers. Just a, just a fabrication, folks. Just a rumor that they weaponized against Trump in an election season to defeat him. Journalism in this country is, is, is a laughable, laughable thing. Corporations are starting to realize that it's not going to be a good idea to spit in the face of half the country, not in the long term. It's, it's just the early stages right now, but I do, I do believe that we have reached a turning point, and it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, but we can push back against them on the other side. And, and the big part of this is going to be pushing back against social media. And a way you can do that is by denying social media and big tech the ability to track you by your IP address. And the best way to do that is with a VPN. Let me explain what a VPN is. It's a virtual private network. It's just a way of saying that it's a computer program. Think of it almost like antivirus back in the day, but this is a computer program you download as an app and you put it on your phone and it protects your smartphone and your laptops, all of your electronic devices from IP tracking so that the big tech companies don't know who you are, where you are, and it also encrypts your data so that hackers and other thieves online can't get access to your stuff. So this is about privacy and security of your data, and all you have to do is download ExpressVPN. This is an app. You go in the app store, you set it up, you'll have it within a minute or two, and then you're good, you're protected. It costs about six bucks a month, so easy to set up, this is a must for your devices. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck. And when you sign up with my link, you'll actually get three extra months free on a one-year package. Expressvpn.com slash buck. You'll get a great deal right now, and you'll protect your devices. Expressvpn.com slash buck. Let's talk to our friend Pedro Gonzalez. He's a senior writer at American Greatness. Going to have him weigh in on all the latest, including this court packing scheme that seems to have at least moved a little bit down the field. Let's get Pedro in the mix. Pedro, man, thanks so much. 
Oh, hey, Buck. It's always good to be here. So I, I see this and I say, I, I wonder at what point, as we have effectively an open border, we have what really is is looking more and more like a mon- modern monetary theory philosophy from the Biden administration, the Democrats, about spending whatever money they want, trillions and trillions of dollars. Everything is infrastructure. They're redefining terms. Uh, they're taking a scorched earth approach on so many things. They talk about eliminating the filibuster. And now here we are being told, oh, no, they're they're at least taking seriously the idea of a straight up Supreme Court packing scheme. When, when are we going to listen uh, and really pay attention to the fact that the other side, for all their flaws, Pedro, they mean business while Republicans kind of wring their hands and, and say, well, where's the moderates? Right. No, that's absolutely right. I, I think th- this is why I try really hard to avoid complaining about double standards, uh, calling for fairness and civility. We're so far beyond that in reality. But nevertheless, you keep hearing the GOP call for that every single time the Democratic Party does exactly what they said they were going to do. And I, it's funny because maybe that is actually shocking to the GOP, people who do what they say they're going to do. Because the GOP is notorious for backpedaling on issues or or finding ways to kind of self-destruct. The Democratic Party does this too, uh, but they're a lot more serious and a lot more committed, a lot more ideological, and much more determined to do what they say they're going to do. And I think the, the court packing thing illustrates the lengths to which that party is willing to go to do what they want, to reimagine the country. And I, I think that this makes conservatives a little bit uncomfortable, the, the, the idea of a willingness to use power. But that's the world we live in. No amount of good arguments and calls for civility, things like that, that's not going to stop the Democratic Party. In, in my view, only power checks power. And until the GOP or someone figures this out, the Democratic Party is going to continue doing what it's doing. And I, I just find it remarkable as well, Pedro, that, that what I, I'll hear from so many uh, conservatives, including those who make a living sharing their thoughts in the media is, oh, they would never do they would never do that. And, I, you know, they would never really push for amnesty. They, they would never really get rid of the filibuster. They would never pack the court. I see you're saying, what makes you think that I mean, what what part of their approach, which is having the entirety of the media and now corporate woke America on their side, breaking norms, upending institutions, bringing ridiculous impeachments against the former president twice in one year. Like what what part of their actions makes it seem like they care about playing fair? Right. And and I think the law of non-contradiction doesn't apply here because conservatives will try to catch Democrats contradicting themselves you know they held a position five years and this year they're they're condemning the gop for it or something like that doesn't work they don't care uh the, the these kinds of rationalistic positions that that their conservative movement and the gop thinks are going to protect them and, and save them they don't work the democratic party is just going to run over you like they're doing now they're it's i guess you could say it's shameless in a way what they do but it I mean it works for them and maybe one reason why the GOP will always put itself in that position where they're saying, well, you know, we didn't think they were actually going to do what they do is because ultimately the GOP will will compromise and, and kind of take the moderate position of the Democratic Party uh, from 10 minutes ago. So if the Democrats want to pack the Supreme Court with 15 judges or 13 judges, 
the Republican Party will stand athwart history and demand 11 instead of 13. It's it's amazing that there is this this tendency that we see time and again on the right and among conservatives to think that just slowing down the progressives a little bit, not even stopping them from their ultimate goal, but just, you know, we're we're telling the bank robbers as as they flee in the getaway car, no speeding, please. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. That, that is. And that and that is, as far as the GOP is concerned, a win. Uh, I mean, like that that's how they tell their constituents. And I think you see this with Christy Noem and Asa Hutchinson basically telling their constituents, look, I know you voted for me to do what you want, but you have to take this loss because it's the it's the best thing you're going to get. And actually, I'm taking the very moderate position of uh, of allowing kids to, you know, chemically castrate themselves or allowing women, uh, men to compete in female sports as long as we're taking the fiscally responsible position of not having the government subsidize that. Uh, we're speaking and, to my my friend Pedro Gonzalez. He's a senior writer at American Greatness. Make sure you check out his latest at americangreatness.com. And and Pedro, we've had a couple of of uh you know re- relatively prominent Republican politicians recently, uh Christy Nome of South Dakota and Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas, who not not only seem to think that that uh you know essentially ab- abandoning what had been considered their their conservative values or conservative positions was okay but then kept kept digging into this further as though no we're not smart enough to understand that they've actually sold out and i, I feel like that that used to work pretty well i think that might be right i, I think that actually most everyday people have always been angry at the gop but I think the stakes just seem so much higher now. And the position for a lot of Americans was the GOP is gutless and corrupt and craven, but they're the lesser of two evils. That, I think, is starting to wear thin for a lot of people because the lesser of two evils is actually not that much less evil anymore. And I think what's really remarkable is that both Hutchinson and Nome went on Tucker Carlson, doubled down on their positions, like you said, expecting their constituents to be stupid, basically, and then subsequently committed suicide on live television, and then continued doubling down on their positions. No went so far as saying that she's the victim of conservative cancel culture, which is another way of saying my constituents are holding me accountable and I don't like it because I'm not used to it. It was remarkable. I mean, the 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 Hutchinson interview in particular was was political it wasn't even self-flagellation it was self-immolation i mean it was just this guy sitting there saying you know yeah you know i just you know we're not going to get in the we're not going to get between 12 year olds and their doctors when they want to be chemically castrated or or have their their sex organs removed it's like you're you're not going to get in the way of that why right Right. because we want to expand the big tent according to hutchinson It, it is just and it, it's difficult to know what he's really thinking. Do you really believe this or are you just saying this because it's in your interest, because you've got donors and you're afraid of the Chamber of Commerce and the NCAA or whatever? But it's it's ultimately irrelevant. The, the outcome is the same. We are better off. Our ch- or Sorry, we are worse off. Our children are worse off because of people like Hutchinson and Noam. It's amazing. Uh, I, I want to ask you to tell me about something that, that I don't think is getting 
a lot of attention right now. Um, but the America First Policy Institute, you know, well, I, I know that you keep it real, Pedro. It's one of the things I like about your work. This sound it sounds great, right? America First Policy Institute. It's like, hey, do you want to go root for, you know, Team America and defeat all the commies? You must love this, right? What's the truth of the America First Policy Institute so far? So all of the very worst people in the Trump administration that I think most of your listeners would agree are bad, like Jared Kushner and so many of his proxies, like Brooke Rollins, who is really just a kind of uh, empty vessel for Coke Industries, which means that Brooke Rollins and Kushner and and uh, their their cadre within the White House, they were the ones that were pushing things like criminal justice reform. They were the ones that told Trump to stand down while cities were being burned to the ground by Black Lives Matter agitators. Uh, Tucker Carlson did a segment on this. He named specifically Brooke Rollins and J- uh, Jaron Smith and Jared Kushner. All three of those people are involved in the America First Policy Institute. And so basically, y- you took the worst people in the White House that everyone can agree were just bad, and now now they're the ones leading the largest uh, post-administration Trump think tank. And if you look at the roster of who's involved, it, it's incredible. Uh, there's an, another organization called Gen Z, Z, Gen Z uh, GOP, and they arose specifically to counter Trump and Trumpism, who they view as authoritarian and xenophobic and racist and all this stuff. And the America First Policy Institute actually recruited one of these people. His name's uh, Javon Prince. And now he's a policy analyst at the America First Policy Institute. So it's not just that you have the worst people from the White House doing this. You also have people that actually uh, resented the Trump agenda, the mandate of 2016, and by extension, Trump supporters, who are now policy analysts at the America First Policy Institute. And so I think it's important to, to, to get beyond the name America First and see that this is, this is extremely misleading and that everyone should know that if you give money or attention or time to this, to this institute, it, it's, you might as well burn it because it's not going to go to, toward what you think it's going. It feels like, uh, Pedro, there's just, there, are, there are more people right now on the right who seek to turn, you mentioned America First, for example, but to seek to turn it into not only just a brand that's highly transferable for commercial purposes, but really into, into a kind of grift. I mean, this is the country is heading in the wrong direction in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the border is the biggest mess it has ever been. I mean, I've talked now to the people who have been working either for Border Patrol or ICE or, or going back on this issue for, for years, for decades. They said this is the worst it has ever been right now. And that's just one of many problems that are, that are uh, unfolding right now before us. And yet, where's our hashtag resistance? You know, I, it, it's it's frustrating to me to see that you say what you will about the left. They had the machinery of of anti-Trumpism in place literally the day after the election. There were marches and protests and riots and, you know, the whole media. And I know that they control some of these institutions, but it feels to me like we never learned that we need the machinery on our side that we can gather together to oppose the Biden agenda because. This agenda is real, folks. This is this is not an administration where you can just sort of batten down the hatches and ignore and hope everything's okay in four years. Right. No, that's exactly right. And I think 
again, this is something that that makes conservatives uncomfortable, but it's true and they should hear it. What we call cancel culture, which is a kind of just a way of holding people accountable. I think conservatives have a misunderstanding of it in, in that we'll make fun of the left for eating each other alive. And, and they do do that. And it is amusing when that happens. But but the, the conservative movement has the opposite problem. We're obsessed with this idea of the big tent. And what that really what really happens in practice is is that we invite people into the big tent that we shouldn't invite because they're either opposed to us or they're totally unserious grifters. And it just so happens that those kinds of people are the ones that will end up taking over the show. And they're the ones that will end up in the limelight and then pushing you out. And I think that conservatives have this problem where they don't cancel people that they should cancel enough. And I think that that is something to consider going forward is we, we really need to have more what you could call movement discipline to avoid these people because this is kind of a paradox. The grifters and, and the subversives, if you want to call them that, they're usually really ambitious. So naturally, they're going to be the ones that will, through charisma or through connections, end up hijacking movements and then turning them against you. And then framing you as organizations like Gen Z, GOP, and Brooke Rollins do, you're the one that's behind the times. Like you're the, there's something wrong with you. And that's the position that we so often find ourselves in. Pedro Gonzalez, everybody, check out his latest at AmericanGreatness.com. Pedro, always a pleasure, man. Talk to you soon. Thank you. He halted construction of the border wall, and he rescinded a Trump administration order that called for the government to faithfully execute our immigration laws, including removals for visa overstays and limiting funding to sanctuary cities. All on his first day, Mr. President. And that's not all. The President's Department of Homeland Security also issued guidelines that same day pausing deportations except under certain conditions. Mr. President, the effect of President Biden's actions was to declare to the world that the United States borders are effectively open. That may or may not have been what President Biden and his administration intended, but it certainly has been the effect. The message received by prospective migrants has been, if you can make it, if you can make it to the U.S. border and claim asylum, whether legitimate or not, even if you illegally cross the border, you're in. Senator Thune is absolutely correct. And this is why the border situation continues to be such an abject mess and a disaster. It's a disaster, not only in the sense that you have people in very crowded conditions spreading COVID and uh, and overwhelming facilities, and the, the whole thing is straining our resources, costing hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. There's that aspect of it, but then there's also the, we don't have border security, friends. Oh, and, and who's supposed to be in charge of restoring national sovereignty and control at our border? Who's going to be in charge of that? Uh, yeah, Kamala Harris, we are told. Here is White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on that. Play five. 
uh, Vice President Harris just said that her first uh, trip abroad, mm -hmm. it looks like it's going to be to Mexico and Guatemala, but she suggested she won't be visiting the border. Um, and so I'm wondering, first off, if the President uh, is considering a trip to the border, and second, why it's not important for one of, you know, the President's main uh, sort of people that he's, he's tasked with dealing with this to visit the border. Well, what the President's asked the Vice President to do is run points on the Northern Triangle and be a, a high-level conduit uh, in having discussions with leaders in the region. That's exactly what she is doing and will do when she goes and uh, visits uh, countries in the region. And, it, and obviously she's had discussions that have been read out as well with some leaders in the region. Uh, Secretary of Homeland Security has visited the border. Our secretary, uh, other secretaries who run points on these issues will, and we expect will in the future. I don't have any visits uh, to preview for you of the president's, but his focus is on solutions. What a mess. Yeah, she can't get down. She's the border czar. Can't get down to the border, though. More important stuff to do. Okay. Harsanyi time. Our friend David Harsanyi from National Review joining us with all the latest news of the day, including a story he's written about on NationalReview.com. There is absolutely no evidence that Kristen Clark's racist letter was satire. You've got to hear about this one. David, great to have you. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So first, tell, tell everybody who, who Kristen Clark is. She is... Joe Biden's nominee uh, for assistant attorney general to run the civil rights division. I forget the exact name, um, which, you know, prosecutes civil rights crimes and things like that for the United States government. And this is an important role. The civil rights division of the DOJ, I will say, stretching back for many years, including under Republican administrations, is known to be a place where career civil servants within the DOJ uh, get get a lot of activism going on with left wing causes. Just for all those listening, this tends to be a place within the institution of the DOJ where you have very progressive tendencies. Um, but this goes well beyond anything like that. Kristen Clark was recently questioned about a a a um, letter to the editor she wrote for the Harvard Crimson when she was at Harvard. And David, just tell some folks a little bit about this. So the letter is, um, and this is from a long time ago, just so everyone understands. She was in college. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's in the mid '90s. I think it was '95 or four. And um, you know, it's about the bell curve. It was a big book that came out at the time. Don't really want to get too far into that. She misrepresents what that book's about, but I don't like arguing about that too much. But anyway, she 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 lays on some kind of like pseudo scientific racist. You know, blacks are superior because of chemicals in their, you know, in their skin color and things like that that were very popular around that time. There were a bunch of professors, Leonard Jeffries. I don't know if any, how many people remember his name, but there were others, Anthony Martin, and she lays this out. So, anyway, fast forward, and someone finds this letter. I think it was the Free Beacon, and uh, you know, she's confronted by about it, and she says it was satire. And she was asked yesterday in front of the judicial committee, uh, Senate Judicial Com Committee about it, and she said it was satire. And everyone mocked, uh, who was it who asked her, a senator, for even believing momentarily or at all that, you know, this, you know, he's totally, it's a total gotcha moment. Yeah, it was Senator, senator John Cornyn. Cornyn, right. So that this was a complete, you know, he made a, a fool of himself because this was satire. But the, the problem with all of this is that it 100% was not satire. <laughs> there was no proof at all 
that that what she wrote was satire. In fact, there's tons of evidence to the contrary. Let, let me just give some. I want to give the folks at home listening to this an idea of what. So this is the the head of the DOJ Civil Rights Division under the Biden administration right now. That's what we're talking about. She was at Harvard. And now we could all say, oh, it was a long time ago. She was in college, whatever. You could all say that. But let's remember that, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's yearbook and and bloofing was the subject of serious Senate inquiry not long ago. So but anyway, this is what this is what she wrote. And this is the quote in response to those who defend the bell curve. And by the way, this does not have. Oh, yeah. In response to those who defend the bell curve. Please use the following theories and observations to assist you in your search for truth regarding the genetic differences between blacks and whites. I'm quoting here, folks. Okay, This is from the Harvard Crimson website, 1994, October 28th. One, Dr. Richard King reveals that at the core of the human brain is the locus coriolis, which is a structure that is black because it contains large amounts of neuromelanin, which is essential for its operation. Two, Black infants sit, stand, crawl, and walk sooner than whites. Three, Carol Barnes notes that human mental processes are controlled by melanin, that same chemical which gives blacks their superior physical and mental abilities. Four, some scientists have revealed that most whites are unable to produce melanin because their pineal glands are often calcification or non-functioning. Pineal calcification rights with Africans are 5 to 15%. With Europeans, it's 60 to 80%. This is the chemical basis for the cultural differences between blacks and whites. We can readily admit, she writes, that an abused child is less likely to achieve academically than a child that has grown up in a supportive atmosphere. Black children, whether rich or poor, grow up with an added abuse with white children never have to face, etc., etc. In addition, it is completely naive to say that blacks have achieved economic equality with whites. It's just ridiculous. Black people are not asking for political correctness, but truthfulness, fairness, and an end to this abuse. Signed, Kristen Clark, president of the Black Students Association. In what way is that? I mean, I I cut a little bit of it out because I want to keep people too long. But, David, I mean, in what way is that satire? No, it's not at all. And uh, and here's the thing. She also invited Anthony Martin, who was a weird a quack like who who basically spread what she wrote in that letter forgot where he taught but anyway he used to speak to colleges in the 90s you know i'm a bit older than you and i remember these people and um you know why would she do that if she didn't if this letter was was satire then there are subsequent letters in which does not uh, typically publish satire at all um from uh, you know, the the editorial board staff of the Crimson saying she should retract it, that they couldn't find a I might not be quoting exactly, but they couldn't find a hint of sarcasm or satire in it and uh, others as well. So I just I'm going to say this. Listen, she was young when she did this. and We all believed dumb things when we we're young. However, um, if any kind of Republican, Donald Trump or any other Republican nominated someone who had David or someone like that speak at a college, their career, they would never in a million years be uh, nominated to begin with, but they'd never in a million years make it through and, and, and sit um, overseeing anything in, in the U.S. government. I know that for sure. And more than that, she uh, went in front of Congress and lied, right? I mean, that's what she did when she said this was satire. It is not satire. Anyway, so, right, so, so, so there's, mo- there's multiple levels. I mean, I agree. There's multiple levels here in which it's a problem. And we're speaking to David Harsani, everybody of National Review. I mean, David, to your, to your first point, she's 
she's she's asserting what would what would accurately be described in this. I mean, granted, she's in college, she's young, but you know, she is an adult when she's writing this. She's asserting what would be described accurately as as a a black supremacist ideology. That's a fair description of what that that black that there are inherent and innate superior traits of people who are black over all other races, by the way. So that's in this. That's not like the normal level of wrong, you know, it, uh-huh. bad thinking that people have in college. This is some other. But put that aside for a second, just to point this out. Beyond that, she's lied, as you say, before Congress. And now we have to sit around and listen to people in the media go, ha, ha, ha. You don't get that it's satire as if we're all morons. Yeah, yeah. It's it's gaslighting. right? I mean, I. I I asked some of the reporters who said it was satire to 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 provide evidence for me, contemporaneous evidence that of, of it being satire. I'd be happily correct the record if that were so. But there is literally not any inkling within the text or in any other way that it was satire. She, she you just read that letter. She mentions two specific experts. Does that sound like satire to you? I mean, she's 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 citing experts, supposed experts on this issue. Um, so it, it's a joke. I'm, I'm, listen, I, I, like, as you mentioned as well before, there's going to be some nut in that position, no matter how you slice it. And that's fine. But, you know, I don't somehow, you know, being lied to in this way and gaslighting people in this way and just journalistically, uh, you know, having no ethics in this. I think that's a big problem for us. So it needs to be pointed out. Yeah, I, I, I just refuse to to just go along with these lies because people keep right. repeating them over and over again. And I think that I'm always reminded of the Solzhenitsyn lecture, actually, at Harvard, Live Not by Lies, where the the real, the basis of the Soviet tyranny in so many ways was just you were constantly forced to accept things you knew not to be true. And and not just yeah. to accept them, but to celebrate them, to espouse them. And, and everything was lied about all the time. And that was really the basis of the Soviet tyranny. I, I'm not saying America's in a tyranny right now. You know, we're, you know, it's still a good country and everything. But we have had some really tyrannical impulses on display over the last year, and a lot of it is rooted in lies. Yeah. No, I mean, everything you said there is right. And, you know, the the thing is, I mean, as you also mentioned, I mean, this is not some kind of normal nuttiness like you're a crazy libertarian and you want to smoke pot or big build, you know, make hemp rope or something. You're this is she's the president of the Black Students Association. And these people that she's inviting, by the way, were huge anti-Semites. And this was in the middle of a time where there were riots and deaths in New York over this sort of thing. And uh, it was it was a pretty ugly time and the riots in L.A. and elsewhere where she was saying this sort of stuff. So, you know, maybe she should have to answer as to how she changed her mind. She should say, listen, I was young and was stupid. I believe some terrible things. And now, you know, this and that. But of course, she's a big fan of the um, Women's March people, too, who are Americanites. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. I, I always remember right now, too. I always remember, David, you know, when I was at Amherst, Justice Scalia came to speak. And there were all these protests and, and people wearing black armbands and stood up and turned their backs to him and all this stuff. And, and it was, you know, some years before I was there, but just down the road at University of Massachusetts, Louis Farrakhan was invited to speak. You know, it's like that. That's just this was even before colleges got as crazy as they are right now. But um, I, I, I you mentioned the uh, journalistic malpractice thing. We just got a couple of minutes, but I wanted to hit on this because as soon as that story came out during the right in the middle of the presidential campaign, that there were bounties being put on American soldiers by Russians to the Taliban. So essentially the Russians are paying Taliban 
to kill Americans. I said, this story doesn't make sense. I don't believe it. It's not there. There's this just it doesn't add up. The Taliban's trying to kill Americans all the time. Russians don't need to pay the Taliban to kill them. The, the whole thing was idiotic. But now they've re- basically retracted it right now. They've said, well, it turns out we actually probably shouldn't have run that story. But, David, it was more than just a news story, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was in the middle, if you remember, of of when there was a there were a slew of stories about how Donald Trump hates the troops and, you know, in the Atlantic um, and elsewhere, you know, thinly sourced. And I don't even know if there are any sources, frankly. How do I know? Because they never, ever, you know, put sources on the record. And, uh, you know, so as part of that whole thing. But it, honestly, as you know, it's been part of five years of of, of slew and, and, and of stories that are uh, that hysteria that mislead Americans about the veracity of their elections and the veracity of the president's uh, you know, patriotism and things like that, that were planted by intelligence people and spread by a compliant media. And it's unprecedented. And it was truly a disaster, I think, in many ways for, for the United States. So, you know, this is just one of many. And, and David, I just I feel like there has been, even if it's not admitted, a real shift in the mentality of of your your run of the mill, your, your standard journalist working for a, a news publication these days uh, where it, it really is about getting a result. And the result is not the provision is, is not providing truth and context for people to make their own that that we've we've seen a shift a, a true shift in the ethics where they're not even they don't even feel the need to pretend anymore. They're they're yeah. out to get the other side, whatever it takes. I mean, if they cared, we'll put it this way. There are biased journalists and they are the good ones now. <laughs> there are corrupt journalists who do this this kind of thing. And if they weren't, then they would burn any source who set them up with a lie like this. But it happens over and over again. And if the institutions cared, people would have there would be repercussions for spreading this sort of thing. This is this is a dangerous story to spread. Russia has nuclear weapons, right? You're talking about a world power and you're spreading stories about them Americans. So I mean, this is sort of dangerous stuff to be doing. And uh, I'm not defending Russia. I think Russia, you know, I think they're bad guys over there. But, you know, it's still we have to to deal with them and, and live in a truthful world in some, some extent. So in essence, you know, what they were doing they're doing exactly what they were saying the Russians were doing to us. And they were doing it over and over and over again. David Harsani, everybody, nationalreview.com for his latest. David, always a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. I'm disappointed that there's this significant amount of hesitancy, but I agree with you, Whoopi. The reason that people are getting vaccinated and still need to be so cautious is because of the growing number of white male Republicans that continue not to want to wear their mask, that continue not want to get vaccinated because they consider it some sort of freedom ride. And it just doesn't really make sense. And I think people like Tucker Carlson are being very irresponsible by sending out this messaging, by sending out the messaging I think he sent out yesterday that maybe the vaccines just don't work. That is irresponsible. It's misinformation and it's causing, I, I think, in the in the long run, um, people to die. People need to be more concerned about the virus, more scared of this virus than the vaccine. This has been this has been the game all along from the lockdowners. Do what I say. Agree with everything that we tell you to do. No matter how stupid it is, no matter how completely absurd it is, mask up between bites, wear that mask outside, 
social distance. Think about this. Social distance, or now they're calling it physical distancing sometimes. This is just a pseudo-scientific way of telling people avoid other human beings. Does does that sound like a really does that sound like a real virus, you know, virus beating strategy? Just avoid other people for for a year. Don't be around other human beings, family members, anyone. Don't be around anyone for a year. That's really what this comes down to. You could say, oh, but they just mean, you know, because no, they told you not to see family at Thanksgiving. You know, they're, they're telling you stay away from humans. And that's supposed to be great scientific advice. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Tucker didn't say the vaccines don't work. This is Sonny Hostet. I mean, she's a fraud. And it's the, the intellectual level in general on the show, The View, is honestly Jerry Springer was was a show that brought together, uh, you know, a higher level of discourse than what you often see on The View. You guys remember the Jerry Springer show back in the day? That was actually that that, had, that was a real phenomenon for a while. People always fighting and tackling each other. That show was crazy. Oh, man. And then he would always edit with, you know, take care of yourselves and each other or something like that. It's like, yeah, after after you've showed us that. You know, so-and-so impregnated so-and-so's brother who's married to the sister who's the cousin of the, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, the whole thing was just such a mess. Then it was, you know, take care of yourselves and each other. I always remember that with Jerry Springer. But anyway, Tucker did not say that the vaccines don't work, but he is po- he's posing the question, if the vaccines work, and they seem to work very well, why are we all still being told that nothing changes? When does it change? Now, remember, they'll concede that the va- so so it's the vaccines work. The vaccines work very well, but the vaccines don't work perfectly. To, to, to that, you go back to the argument. OK, well, they're never going to work perfectly. We all understand that. So if the vaccines work very, very well and it's never going to be perfect. There'll always be some risk. There'll always be some people who still get sick and there'll always be some covid endemic in the population. Why can't vaccinated people just live their lives? Because you see, if you take this to its logical conclusion, you get to a place where you realize if you obey what the Fauciites are telling you, there is a a clear pathway for them to make you deal with this, to to make this something that is a a problem forever. You you never actually get to put that mask away. You know, we, we have to finally tell them enough. Your irrational hysteria about minute about you know low risk situations and possibilities is not allowed to infringe upon the most most basic rights we have the right to breathe fresh air folks that's what's actually at stake here but on the view you know just just keep worshiping fauci like the people who are just unable to think for themselves on this stuff No party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. It's time for Roll Call. Get those funky tunes rolling, Producer Mark. I got good news for you. You know what the good news is? What is the good news? It's Thursday, my man. I know. Which means that we are almost working for the weekend, or about to be at the weekend, which is nice. At this point, we're just working for the summer, right? Yeah, I think so. That's probably true. What's going on in Producer Mark World? You got anything to tell the folks, the, the, the fans, the listeners all across America? No, I'm very boring. I don't really do much. I, don't feel, I feel like no one really does much these yeah. days. I feel like we're all just being constantly uh, 
anesthetized by the abundance of delicious food, electric entertain, you know, electronic entertainment options and, you know, very comfortable uh, athleisure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. All I do is wear sweatpants and watch a lot of TV nowadays. Yeah, it's just not not really a lot of exciting Which stuff. I'm okay with the sweatpants, but I wish I would do more stuff. I gotta tell you, I, I'm I, I think I need to just give away like half of my suits because I just I don't think I'm going back to being a suit guy. You know, I don't see it happening. It's just a suit is. I've always said this: suits are not comfortable. No, I don't aren't. care. You know, if you have it made to measure, I don't, it, it, suits are just not that comfortable. You don't walk around with a suit with a with a suit jacket on. That's not that's not fun. You know, that's not good. I have uh, walked around many hockey and basketball arenas with full suits on, and ne- it was never pleasant. Yeah. You're like, what am I doing with this? We'd all be better off. This is a, this is a big change. In the same way that people are realizing that all along, a lot of us could have been doing our work from home and not just getting all sweaty. I mean, for those who have never experienced this, there's something particularly humbling about being a, a person who has to get on the New York City subway in the middle of July because you will stand on a crowded subway platform on the way into your, your office and you will just sweat through whatever you're wearing. I mean, it's like being in a sauna and then you get to get on the subway car where the air conditioning is turned all the way up and then you're like freezing. You practically have, you know, icicles coming off your nose and then you get. So after after sort of getting, you know, sweaty and damp, on the subway platform, because the subway itself is not air conditioned. I mean, the subway, uh, you know, area. Uh, then you get to get like wet and cold on the subway train. And then you go into your office, which is probably also very air conditioned. And you sit there and you just feel like a, a damp, cold swamp body. And then you got to sit there for eight hours. You know what I'm talking about? Of course. I can still like in my brain when I think about it, smell a hot subway station. Yeah. That, that there's a certain smell. You can't describe it, but whenever you experience it, you know it. There's and a very the is a very unique essence yeah. to the New York City subway smell mid July. It's kind of a I mixture hope to of never smell it again. Old old pizza cartons, rat feces and human urine. All in this this wonderful brew. You know, that's that's what the you got. Subway station below our building when we had a building in Manhattan, our work office Oh my god! Oh like, yeah, disgusting. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I wonder what people are going to want to go back to uh, in life, and what they're going to say. Man, I'm going to say something. You know, crowded bars, crowded restaurants. Mm, I don't know. I I don't know how much I really. I was thinking I would I would want to go to a crowded bar just be around people and stuff, but not really. Nah, nah. I don't need it. I don't need it. You get amazing, at least in in a city like New York, and I know there's a lot of places like this across the country. You get amazing food delivered. You know, and you get to be in your own home. The same reason why I don't look, I've I've changed a lot of these behaviors over over time. I'm not a movie guy going. I should say going to the movies guy anymore. I just won't do it. It's expensive. It requires effort. I have a, I don't know, 55 inch flat screen TV. I've got a incredibly comfortable couch that we call old gray because it's old and gray. So that makes sense. And. You know, I can I got my fridge. I got my own restroom. I can press pause. I can take a phone call if I have to, you know, and so I just feel like these behaviors are shifting 
And I wonder what behaviors are going to continue. Like, Mark, what do you think you're going to keep doing that's a change from the pandemic that you're going to keep going forward with even, let's say, this time next year? I'd say for, like, social settings, now me and my friend group, we prefer hanging out in each other's homes. Like, I don't care how many people are in it, but rather than going to a bar or going out to dinner or doing all that, uh, just because why would I pay all this extra money for food when we can have food delivered, make our own food, and, and get our own booze or whatever, you know? Just group outings in your own home. That will be the thing that I want to stay from COVID. Yeah, I, I think people have gotten very used to comfortable and controlled environments, and it's tough to go back. I mean, I, I, I took the Snow Princess out because she just got a great a great new job, and so she's in business school, and she's got a great new job, and I'm so proud of her. And we, t- I took her out. It was kind of like a special occasion dinner place. And, you know, they kind of messed up the food. The service was bad. The music was way too loud. You know, we had some issues. And it was pricey. I mean, I, I feel like I got rinsed. And I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, I, I could have I actually ordered steaks from my favorite steakhouse in all of New York and just had them delivered to my apartment. And had a perfectly quiet, nice evening. Just to, you know, it, so this I think this is going to change for some folks. I know we have a lot of audience that you know lives in the suburbs or lives in rural areas, and so that's not really. But if you live in a city, I mean, I don't know. I've kind of gotten used to not being crammed in a subway car full of. I've gotten used to not being around people I don't really want to be around. You know what I mean? I, I think it's going to be tough to go back. Yeah, I don't want to be uh, shoulder to shoulder with strangers anytime soon, and it has nothing to do with COVID. It's just unenjoyable. Yeah. I mean, look, no matter who you are, at some point in the subway, you're just you're going butt to butt. I don't know how else to say it. You're going to your butt is going to be pushed up against some random some random guy or gal's butt because you're squashed in like sardines. And that's just the way it's going to be. But you're lucky know. if it's your butt that's the one that's crammed against something. Somebody else. Wait, what? You're lucky if it's just your butt that's crammed. Oh, yeah. Else. I'm just saying you get squashed in on all sides. But, yeah, I don't I don't need to be butt to butt with strangers. You know, I, I want to I want someone to, you know, take me out to dinner and a movie before we go butt to butt. You know what I mean? It's not we don't need that. So just saying. All right, Dan, let's get into it here. Dan, Uncle Buck, your struggle to find something good to watch on Netflix with the Snow Princess struck a nerve with me. Seems like the kids today are inundated with very racy content like that sexy killer babysitter movie you described or literally anything Cardi B does. We come from the same era, the 90s. Back then, edgy content meant Jesse Spano was hooked on caffeine pills or Uncle Phil and Will were thrown in jail for being African-American. It's strange to think the 90s were a simpler time, but it was. I miss it. Where do we go from here? Dan, I think I miss the 90s a lot. I, I miss the 90s culturally. I, I think it was, you know, I just think it was a better time in a lot of ways. I think the, my my belief is that the absolute peak of technology for for life to be convenient, but you to still have some privacy, the, the absolute peak was like late night, like 99, 2000, when everybody could have a cell phone, because that is really nice. That is really, you know, convenient and helpful. Um, but we didn't have smartphones and we it was just it was just a better time, man. I don't know. I, I miss I miss the music of the 90s. I got to tell you, you know, producer Mark, I, I've I was complaining to producer Mark, everybody that I've been going to the gym pretty consistently now. I mean, I'm very today. I'm like very I've got doms, which is delayed onset muscle soreness because I'm actually going to the gym pretty hard, pretty consistently. 
And I've been eating a little bit cleaner, which is really a bummer. And I'm just sort of sit- sitting here like, well, I don't know. I can either just sort of wear sweats and be a cuddly radio host and eat all the cookies and pad thai I want, or I can go to the gym and, and you know, eat small. The worst, the thing for me is really, honestly, it's not even the food choice. It's just smaller portions. It, that's really the, I, I've learned that this is, if you're really going to do this and try to cut, it's smaller portion. Because, I mean, you can sit there. You can have penne alla vodka. You just have, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, six ounces of it or something. But I don't want six ounces, producer Mark. I want like 14 ounces of penne alla vodka. Yeah, of course. If you're eating penne alla vodka, what are you eating six ounces of? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, what do you bring me my penne alla vodka and like a little, a little tiny salad bowl or something? No, I want in a bigger plate of pasta. I want a penne alla vodka with the prosciutto and the, I want the whole, you know, I want the whole thing. And anyway, uh, but I, I was, I was in the gym and I'm trying to think. I've also re- recognized, and this is something that always comes to me when I start getting more consistent, that lifting weights without music i just i'm just more focused i do a better job without blasting music but i i do need music for cardio because i'm just punishing myself and i hate it but so i was looking for music to listen to and i picked up some you know nine i mean not 90s of course 90s would be amazing uh i picked up some top 40 i'm just curious top 40 2021 you know playlist and it was just garbage it's just bad and it's amazing how much music from the 90s is now being recycled as some kind of a techno remix, which I think just goes to my theory that a lot of music today is just not very good. And I know people want to say, oh, it's just because things. No, I, I think it's just not very good. I don't think anyone's going to be listening to. Uh, I'll tell you this. I don't think anyone's going to be listening to Ed Sheeran in 10 years. I just oh, don't think you so. bite your tongue. Yeah, I know. I'm just uh, saying. Have you ever seen the old man yells at cloud meme? That is you. No, probably is, yeah. But you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of some of the other. I don't even know. There's this. There's the Dua Dua Lipa. I was. Ex- I, I learned of this of the Dua Lipa artist. I believe is that the name. Yes, she's big nowadays. Yeah, she's big nowadays. I just. I don't know. I don't think this stuff is good. I really don't. And I know it's. Like, I'm having a get off my lawn moment, but I'll agree with you with most of the new people. But like, give me Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift at least. Those are the only two current artists I can think of that are fine. Well, T Swift, I'll always have sort of a soft spot for, but uh, Ed Sheeran. Okay, and Ed Sheeran's actually a talented musician and everything. So that was he wasn't really, but he was in a bunch of these things. But I'm, I'm talking. See, the thing is, I was listening to Ed Sheeran techno remixes, Mark. Ah, oh, that's because it's for workouts, and so that you're just like, ugh, you know. I mean, look, Calvin Harris. Calvin Harris is is good if you like uh, if you like electronic music. But, you know, Calvin Harris is just the Paul Oakenfold of today. And, you know, people from the 90s, you guys all remember Paul Oakenfold. Ready, steady, go. I mean, you all remember Paul Oakenfold. Anyway, I I know I'm having a little get off my lawn moment, but there's the uh, the the sexy killer babysitter movie was just so bad. But I'm telling you, the sexy killer babysitter said he's sexy killer babysitter movie on Netflix is actually better than the guy who is like a weird fish monster who wants to hold women and, and use them to create more fish monsters. I mean, it's the worst crap I've ever seen in my life. So there you go. That is that is my movie review session for you today. All right, continuing with Roll Call. And remember, if you want to be a part of Roll Call, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, or you can write us an email at teambuck at iheartmedia.com dot com uh francis 
And if you're on Instagram, by the way, follow me on Instagram. Send me messages there. Just Buck Sexton. You'll find me very easily. And it, it is me. I read it. I mean, producer Mark curates it for roll call, but I'm reading it. I'm going through it. So I, I always think it's so funny where people write in like, I know you're never going to see this and like to write in. Well, I'm seeing it right now. So I see it. This is where you say yes, Buck. Yes, Buck. You do read the messages, but I read yes. all of them. Yeah, he reads all of them. I read as many as I can get yes. to. Francis, Buck, I'm listening to an older podcast. You're speaking about United Airlines' statement how in 10 years, 50% of their pilots will be female and minority. The only way that's going to happen is if they open their own flight school and admit only females and minorities and probably subsidize the cost as well. Flight training is very expensive, and there are just not enough females and minorities in the pilot training pool uh, to come up in the ranks to qualify for the airlines. I wish there were, but there just aren't. At any given time, there's between 5 to 7% of the certificate of pilots in the United States who are female. I know you commented on the qualification part of this, but it's not just United's sole decision on what the qualifications are. The FAA and the insurance company for the airlines are two of the loudest voices. Uh, Francis, you know a lot more about this than I do, so thank you for writing and telling us about it. But yeah, this is, this is the, the constant battle that we see happening about this stuff is they tell us, oh, we won't lower standards. And then when the numbers don't add up the way they want them to, they lower the standards. I mean, you, it's like you can set your watch by it. I mean, it's just like you set an egg timer. They say, oh, we'll never lower the standards. No way. And then they lower the standards. And this is why when you're talking about things like, you know, surgeons in the OR, pilots for the airplanes, uh, you know, we want the best people. I don't care. I don't care what skin color, what gender, what, uh, what you know, sexual uh, uh, orientation. Or, I, I, I don't care at all. I just want the person who's the most competent at the essential task of keeping me alive. And whatever objective metrics we have in place to help determine that, we have to protect those metrics. And... Hey, Buck, really enjoy your show. Sad this weekend to see corporations like Target, Starbucks, LinkedIn, and United gathering to discuss limiting donations to political candidates who vote in what the corporations designate as incorrect voter laws. Who's running the United States now? Corporations or the people and their honestly elected legislative representatives? Corporations are considering restricting my voter rights by telling candidates how they must interpret voter rights and how they must craft voter laws in their states. This is a shocking situation. Corporations are uh, uh, corporations need to stick to their products and services and let our honestly elected representatives debate, vote, and do things on behalf of us like established laws. Corporations do not make laws for people. Honestly elected legislators do. I agree, and it's a bad situation, and it only stops when we take action and put our dollars where our, where our minds are on this stuff. You know, support support companies that support our principles and punish those that don't. That's the only way this change. It's the only way this will change. Buck, about the chance of getting COVID off of surfaces. This is from Richard. When I had my gallbladder out, I asked the doctor what my chances were for death. He told me about one in 10,000. I survived and felt safe. The odds of getting hit by lightning in your lifetime are one in 15,000 or 152,000 rather. Why are we worried about services? I'm fully vaccinated. I'm not wearing a mask. I will not participate in any passport craziness. Shields high. Richard, I know people have lost it and they uh, they're not 
understanding these things. It's just crazy. So risk mitigation, folks. We got to do it ourselves. Uh, Stop listening to Fauci. That's part one. All right, everybody. Back tomorrow for a Friday show. Shields high.